Bibles out to John chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. You're welcome to take it home and read it and use it. John chapter 12 in your Pew Bible is going to be on page 898. If you're new to Christianity, not super familiar with how to read the Bible, the chapter numbers are the big numbers, and the verse numbers are the small numbers. If you have trouble finding it, just ask someone next to you for help. We'd, we'd love to help you find it. This morning's text is going to be in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Follow along with me as I read God's word aloud. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So, they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Amen. Uh, I'm going to break up this text into two sermons. This morning we'll call part one. Part one has four points, note takers, four points. Here they are. Mary's worship is, ellipses, one, responsive, two, risky, Three, sacrificial, and four, radical. Let me pray. Father, I'm very much in need of your help this morning. The truth of the matter is that everyone in this room, in one way or another, whether they realize it or not, is very much in need of your help. Our eyes are so blind to the reality of who you are and what you have done for us in the gospel. Help us to see this morning. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Point number one, Mary's worship is responsive. Now, it may surprise you to find out that this morning's sermon is in fact the third sermon on the resurrection of Lazarus. 
This may not be immediately obvious to us as we read our Bibles, as we kind of work through. Maybe you read John chapter 12 in preparation for this morning's sermon, and you were reading about the anointing with oil, and because of the chapter divisions and the various subheadings on the pages of your Bible, you didn't immediately connect this event back to the previous event, the resurrection of Lazarus. But if you read the text carefully, if you read the text in its context, then you'll see that Mary's anointing of Jesus is an act of worship in response to the resurrection of Lazarus. And let me show you what I mean. Just look back at verse 1 again. Six days before the Passover, that's significant, we'll come back to that, probably next, next sermon. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So what we see is that Jesus had moved away from Bethany. Now he's moved back to Bethany. Bethany is a village, if you remember, located just two miles north of Jerusalem. And John tells us, the readers, that this is the village where Lazarus was resurrected. Now why does John say that? Why does John include that? Pen and parchment are not cheap. Space matters. You don't waste words when you're writing a gospel. Why does he tell us this? Because he wants us to make the connection between the resurrection of Lazarus and this dinner party. You can see that even further if you look at verse 2. You see that word so or therefore. They gave a dinner for him there. John wants us to know that this is the same Bethany where Lazarus was raised from the dead So we'll understand the reason for this dinner party, the nature of the dinner party. This dinner party is not a casual hangout. It's not a random rendezvous, you know, like, oh, I just happened to see you guys at, you know, Sushi Sumo. Oh, you're here, I'm here, we'll both pull up a table and now it'll be a party. That's not what's happening here. This is a dinner that's being thrown in honor of Jesus. Now, in the same account of this dinner recorded in Mark chapter 14, we learn that this was a dinner being held in the house of Simon the leper. Now, if you know anything about being a leper in the Old Testament law, a leper can't be in the camp. He has to be outside of the camp, away from the people. So it could be even further inferred that this dinner has other people present who have been healed by Jesus. I I wonder how many people who are present have been healed by Jesus. This could be like... Like if if a pastor served a church for 50 years faithfully and all the church members showed up and said, hey, we want to thank you for the way that you've blessed us with your life. That could be this kind of dinner for Jesus. Hey, we just want to say thank you for everything that you've done for us. What we see is that this dinner itself is a responsive act of worship. Let me just stop here. This isn't even in my notes, but I just want to let you know that this is a category that's a pretty good category for Christians to have. Let's get together and feast and celebrate and thank God for what he's done for us and the family that he's given us in the church. If you ever wonder why I'm always just like, hey, let's let's get food involved. Maybe partly it's because I'm American, but partly because I just see it in the Bible. Every time where there's a big feast, a big celebration, God's always like, let's make it better with food and drink. Moving on. Within the larger gathering itself, something else happens beyond just the mere dinner that's being held. Mary 
comes along and she breaks a flask of perfumed oil on the head of Jesus. Now, remember the context, okay? Going all the way back into chapter 11, remember the context. In chapter 11, verse 5, John tells us that Jesus loved Mary. We also know that Mary loved Jesus. But then, Mary sent for Jesus to come save her brother, whom she also loves, and Jesus did not come. Jesus let Lazarus die. Now go back and look at chapter 11, verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Now, some commentators think that Mary stayed at the house when Jesus arrived because she was upset with Jesus. I don't think this is far off the mark. I don't think this is just mere speculation like you can sometimes find with commentaries. They're kind of just pulling stuff out of thin air. The reason why I don't think that is because of the way Mary talks to Jesus in verse 28. Look at verse 28. When she had said this, she went, that's Martha, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, so on and so forth. Verse 31, when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, you remember from our sermon on John 11 and this interaction that we don't want to read too much into this, but it seems like Mary is perhaps frustrated, angry, disappointed, doubtful towards Jesus. You weren't here. You said you loved him. You could have been here. You can do whatever you want, and you weren't here. Why, Lord? Why weren't you here? You have all of this in the background. And then John opens up chapter 12 and says, Jesus is back in Bethany. And there's a big celebration dinner. And Lazarus is reclining at the table. Oh, man. Have you ever had a moment of just pristine gospel clarity? Where, you know, you already believe the gospel, you know. But there's just a moment where the weighty reality of the glory of God's grace just comes crashing down on you in a way that you just you've never felt anything like this before that's what this feels like for me with Mary she has with her own two eyes beheld the glory of Jesus Christ in his resurrection power and she has beheld this glory and grace in light of her own sin I doubted you I was angry with you. I, I was basically accusing you. And yet here I am sitting with you and my resurrected brother. I was wrong for that. And it just seems like, it seems like the reality of the weight of the gospel just struck her heart like lightning. And the only thing she can do is respond with extravagant worship. 
And so she goes and she gets the nard and she dumps it on his head and she washes his feet with her hair. Friends, true, authentic, passionate, risky worship is always responsive in nature. It always responds to the gospel. It must first behold God in the gospel and then respond to that God in light of what it has seen. As a young Christian, I remember trying to figure out the whole church situation, right? You guys ever been there? I was trying to figure out what church should I go? I'm a Christian now. I know I should go to church. What church should I go to? And I had been to a number and a, a, a few of the churches that I had been to, every Sunday seemed like an exercise in futility. You know, every Sunday, the music, the lights, the preaching, the tempo, it was all just trying to keep us whipped up, worshiping at a high level of intensity, constantly trying to get the congregation to a fever pitch, an emotional fever pitch, so that we could give God what they would call a maximum amount of praise. And these worship services, they were, man, exhausting. Exhausting. Have you ever been to one of these? Maybe you felt five minutes of like, boom, I'm on fire, let's go. But then it fell off, but guess what? The guy on stage says, no, we're not going to let it fall off. Play the song again. Play it louder. Play it faster. I'm going to start guilt tripping you. I want more people down in front. You know what I'm saying? And it is just oppressive and exhausting and inauthentic. These churches believe that powerful worship is merely a response to the energy of the worship leader or the skill of the musician on stage, or the rhetorical talent of the preacher. And lest I be you know, accused of just picking on the kind of laser light show, fog machine, evangelical churches of like lowbrow America, these same things happen in high liturgical churches. We're going to keep our people engaged with the smells, and the bells, and the icons, and the history. and the It's the same kind of thing. It's just a highbrow version of it. Friends, this is not how true worship works. True worship is a Holy Spirit response. The Holy Spirit living in us perceives the glorious gospel that's being communicated to us in song, through the reading of the word, through the preaching of the word, through the observance of the sacraments. It perceives the gospel and then responds appropriately. True worship is not something that we can, in our flesh, work up from within ourselves. And it's not something that we can have stimulated inside of us from outside of us. Doctor has a patient on the table, his heart has died, no electrical signals. You put the AED on there, kakoosh. You stimulate the electrical impulses from electricity outside. That can't happen in worship, unless God is the one who's doing the stimulating. Just stop and think about it, just for a moment. What should, in the Christian, elicit a greater response of worship? A powerful bridge and build-up in a worship song? Or these words from Colossians? Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. 
What should create a greater response of praise in our hearts? The, the lighting and the ambiance in the meeting hall? Or Ephesians chapter 2? But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, listen, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Man. Friends, you can certainly have a powerful emotional response to various parts of the worship experience. Music, lighting, clever communication. And not all of that is bad. Some of that can be done well. But I want to make sure that we understand that when we respond to those things primarily, what we are doing is not worshiping. A traveler tells the story of going to an African village and hearing the villagers singing a beautiful song in their native tongue. Beautiful. And, and the traveler is just overwhelmed, you know, just, oh, I've never heard anything like this. Oh, just. And, he, and he goes to the, to the translator and he's moved to tears. He, Please tell me what these amazing, beautiful people are, are singing about. I want to I I participate with them. And he says, oh, this is the song about how to kill and skin a goat. That actually happened. We can be carried away and deceived by the form without actually having the essence. Do you see? True worship must be a right response to the gospel. Everything else must adorn the gospel. So, just practically, here's some application for your heart and and for your life. If you're having a hard time right now, engaging in genuine, heartfelt worship, there may be a couple of different things going on. Number one, it may be just because you're adapting to the new stuff. Like if you're in our church, I'm guessing what you've experienced this morning is probably very different than what you may experience in half the church's indicator. Maybe many of the churches that you've grown up with. We just spent a long time in prayer, like a very long time, and our prayers were almost entirely focused on God. And when we were, when we were focusing on ourselves, we were talking about our sin, right? And then we read a long passage of Scripture, and we did music, and oh, it was so beautiful, but it was just a piano. And I'm going to be up here preaching for a long time. And that may be tough for you, so maybe you're having a hard time with worship just because you're your taste buds are changing. Your palate is adapting. You know? Raw milk versus homogenized milk. That's not in my notes. Maybe, maybe you're here and you're having a hard time worshiping, or maybe you're just having a hard time worshiping the Lord in general as a response to his gospel because you don't believe the gospel. That's a category that you should have in your heart and mind, that's, that's, that's a real possibility. Maybe your heart isn't responding because you don't believe the thing that you should respond to. You, yeah, I know you've been to church your whole life, and you know, and you walk down the aisle, but you know that none of that equals being a Christian. So it's possible that you're just kind of going through the motions, you're part of a social club, you're engaging in this cultural activity, but your heart is not regenerate. You're like a Muslim who goes to the mosque. You're sort of just doing your duty. Friends, that's not the way Christianity works. We don't just do our duty. Our duty is always a delight in response to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Now, if you are a Christian and, and you're struggling to respond appropriately to God, it could just be that you're at a low point in your spiritual walk. And we all go through that. We, we go through these slumps. These, we have the peaks and we have the values. And I'll tell you, one of the best things you can do is just to focus on the gospel. Just take time. Find time. Sean, I'm so busy. Make time to just meditate on the gospel. And listen, for like you young whippersnapper, I read all the books, I don't mean get another theology book and read about the gospel. I mean, think about the gospel and how it is applied to your life. Meditate on the reality of the holiness of God, the beauty of God, the glory of God, the kindness of God. Then think about yourself and your own sin, your own fallen nature in relation to God. And then think about the fact that even though you were a rebel against God, and even though you still fail God, God has loved you in Christ, and He lives in you in His Holy Spirit, and He is not giving up on you. As a matter of fact, the worse you are, the more He loves you, and the more grace He gives you, because He has promised to take you all the way home. Meditate on that. Come back and let me know how you are with responding to God in praise. It seems like Mary, in light of all that has happened here, she is finally beginning to see herself for who she truly is. And she can only see that because she can only finally begin to see who Jesus is. Friends, remember this. For the rest of your earthly life, the authenticity and the fervency of your worship will be directly correlated to the apprehension of the gospel, to your apprehension of the gospel. Not intellectual apprehension or mere intellectual apprehension, but heart apprehension, your mind, your will, your emotions. I love this quote from Greg Gilbert. He says, An emaciated gospel leads to emaciated worship. It lowers our eyes from God to self, and it cheapens what God has accomplished for us in Christ. Now, the biblical gospel, by contrast, is like fuel in the furnace of worship. The more you understand it, the more you believe in it, the more you appropriate it, the more you rely on it, the more you adore the God of it, both for who He is and what He has done for you in Christ, the more you will find yourself experiencing true worship. Point number two. Mary's worship is risky. Now, let's again remember the context of this dinner. Back in chapter 11, verse 57. We just turn back there and look, look at it real quick with me. 1157. This is after the resurrection of Lazarus. Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, that is where Jesus was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This order was put out from Jerusalem to all the surrounding areas, including Bethany, after Jesus resurrected Lazarus. And here we have a celebration dinner for Jesus, a public event celebrating Jesus. This is a risky gathering. How risky is it? Well, 
Lazarus is about to have a bounty put on his head. We'll see this next week. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The Jews want to kill Jesus. And anyone who isn't trying to help them kill Jesus is on the other team. The people who are putting on this dinner dinner are engaging in a risky activity. And the point that I want to communicate to you is that in a lost and dying world that loves the darkness and hates the light, true worship is always going to be risky. There will be varying degrees of risk, but there will always be risk. Now, what is risk? Risk is simply an action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury. If you're like, oh, I'm a note taker, Sean, say that again. Okay, risk is simply an action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury. Now, in a fallen world, again, where men love the darkness and hate the light, walking in the light, worshiping God publicly, exposes us to the potential to loss or injury. Financial loss. Career loss, relational loss, reputational loss, the loss of health and wellness, the loss of freedom, and of course, the loss of life. I want us to understand that this is not an exceptional moment. This is the normal state of affairs for worshiping Jesus. Lazarus received the grace and mercy of Christ and then immediately found himself on the Pharisees' hit list. In order to give Jesus the public glory that he rightly deserves, Simon the leper, Mary, and Martha put themselves at risk. And by the way, this is not just unique here to John 12. This is something that you see all throughout Scripture. All throughout Scripture. When Gideon worshipped Yahweh and destroyed the altar of Baal, as the Lord commanded him in an act of worship, the men of the town came to his father Joash and said, Bring out your son, that he may die. Gideon risked for the Lord. When Esther worshipped Yahweh and feared him above the king, she spoke these words. She says, well, then I will go into the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Why did she say that at the end? If I perish, I perish. Because she understood that what God was calling her to was very risky, risky for her life. When Nebuchadnezzar demanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego worship his image, the three brothers responded like this, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, I love that, he will, but if he doesn't, Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Right? They say, we know he can and he will, but if he doesn't, because we're not God, right? We just have this rock-solid confidence, but we're not God. We don't know what he's going to do. But here's what we will do. We will assume the risk. And what a risk it was. Paul, during his ministry, said this, the Holy Spirit testifies me testifies to me that in every city imprisonment and affliction awaits me. And he wasn't like, well, I guess I'm not going to go to any more cities. 
He went. He didn't know how it was going to come. He didn't know when it was going to come. He didn't know how severe it was going to be. But he knew every time I go somewhere else for the sake of Jesus to publicly honor him among the nations, I am incurring a risk of loss and injury. After Paul was able to behold the glory of Christ on the road to Damascus, he spent the rest of his short life risking his life for Jesus. If our worship of Jesus, friends, never leads us into any kind of risk, something is wrong. Not might be wrong. I'm not using qualified language here. If it never, never leads us to risk, we, we never experience any kind of loss or injury for the sake of Jesus, something is wrong. Now, obviously, for the extra young and zealous among, among us, I'm not talking about foolhardy risk, unwise risk, overly zealous, unnecessary, ungodly risk. I'm talking about necessary risk. I'm talking about I see Jesus, his beauty, his worth, his glory, and for the joy set before me, I'm willing to risk these other lesser things for the glory of his name. I'm willing to risk my career. Christians, some of the wisest older men I know are telling younger Christians, think wisely about your career path in light of your following Jesus because it's not going to be the same as it was 30 years ago. Risk offending someone powerful in the community. Risk being unpopular where you really would like for everyone to include you. You want to be part of the clique, part of the gang, part of the group. Risk your personal property. Risk your savings in your comfortable retirement. Risk your legacy. Risk your friendships. I recently lost a friend. Not to drunk driving, not to drugs, but because I was trying to be a good brother in Christ to him. Let's just take a moment and just, and just do some sober self-assessment. Let's just ask ourselves in our hearts, Lord, when was the last time that my worship of you led me to risk something that I care about? Just think about that in your own hearts. Now, there are, there are different ways we can respond to this. Maybe some of us are thinking, well, Sean, <laughs> actually, I just risked something pretty big just this week or last week or last month or last year. Well, praise God. I'm, I mean, really, praise God. Like, that's such a huge evidence of grace for you to be able to put your flesh to death and to, to count the cost of following Jesus. And as I was preparing the sermon, to be honest with you, this was the part of the sermon where I was going to, like, bring out the hammer, you know, and just start like, boom, boom, boom. You guys suck really bad, <laughs> right? Not me. I got it all together. But you guys, whew, you can do better. And then I started thinking about the members of our church and the ways that we have counted the cost and taken big risks for Jesus. I could just start pointing Steve Freeman, Michael Wall. I was thinking about the Nortons. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but the Norton family moved here at a time. They left, they moved very far away to come here to be a part of this church. 
at a time when most people in the life of this church, where we were along the continuum of revitalization, probably would not have taken such a big risk to move here and be a part of this church. You know? I think about Luke and Kate Hill. I got to know Luke really well. I said, brother, I, I want you to come and, and do our internship. And Kate was like, so who is this guy? And what is this church? Right? And I could just keep going. Like, our congregation is just so full of the grace of God to be able to do the kinds of things that we're talking about in this church. But let me just give you a quick warning. Don't sail off of that wind forever. Because the thing that you, the thing that you think you're excelling in today could be the thing that you struggle with tomorrow. Right? I struggled recently with a, a, a financial decision that, that required uh, some risk and, and some um, sacrifice and I was talking to a brother about it, and he said, you know, given your history, this doesn't seem like it would be a problem for you. you that, this actually seems like it's a strong suit for you. And I was like, shoot, I thought it was, but here I am having this heart battle, you know? It was only God's grace that gave you the ability to take that risk in the first place. You need his grace to be able to do it again in the future. As I was preparing the sermon, I, I couldn't help but think about some of our brothers and sisters around the world who are incurring the most significant around, amount of risk for the sake of Jesus. I'm just thinking about the church in North Korea. Uh, just listen to this description of what it's like to be a Christian in North Korea. Any North Korean caught following Jesus, and that could be even, even like saying a prayer, having a shred of the New Testament tucked away somewhere in your home, any way that you follow Jesus is at immediate risk of imprisonment, brutal torture, and death. An estimated 50 to 70,000 Christians are imprisoned in North Korea's notorious system of prisons and labor camps. That's another way of saying concentration camp. And to make matters worse, oftentimes the near family of the Christian will suffer the same punishment of the Christian himself. That's a category of risk that we really don't have a category for. If you're in North Korea and they find out that you're a Christian, they will all but certainly imprison your parents and your children just to make sure that the whole family is taken care of. Life for Christians in North Korea is a constant cauldron of pressure. Capture or death is only a mistake away. But get this. There is still a thriving underground church in North Korea. <laughs> it blows me away. I mean, they face the most significant risk of, of loss and suffering, maybe in the history of the church. If not the most, then right up there with the most. And they still find some way to read God's word. They still find some way to get together and pray. They still find some way to worship the Lord Jesus. Maybe that's the hammer for us that we need this morning. Point number three. Mary's worship is sacrificial. I want us to see two ways in which Mary's worship is sacrificial. First of all, Mary's worship is materially sacrificial. Look at verse three again. It says, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. John tells us that Mary covered Jesus in this, this pure nard. Now, you guys know what the nard is, obviously, right? We're not talking about this Johnson & Johnson baby oil, 
that you can buy at Walgreens, okay? Nor are we talking about the $50 bottle of essential oils that you bought from someone who messaged you out of the blue on Facebook six years after the last time. Have you ever wanted to own your own business? No, we're not talking about that. We're not even talking about the $300 bottle of cologne that you can buy from Giorgio Armani. This is the good stuff. This is what the text tells us is the good nard, the pure nard. You guys know what I'm talking about. The, the, but I'll tell you anyways, in case maybe there's someone here who doesn't. This pure nard is extracted from the honeysuckle plants of northern India. And that's expensive for a reason. Think about northern India, Jerusalem. About 4,000 miles as the crow flies. Right, that's a long journey. And this isn't the low-quality nard. It's the high-quality nard, the pure nard. It's uncut It's the expensive stuff. And John tells us that there was a pound of it. Now, this is a Roman pound. So think about it like 11.5 ounces, roughly the amount of liquid that's in a soda can. Okay? Now, moreover, we find out that this is worth about... People have dedicated their lives to studying these things. That this amount of nard is worth about 300 denarii. Now, a denarii in the ancient world was about a day's wage. Okay, so this is about a year's worth of wages. I say about a year because for the festivals and the feasts and the Sabbaths, you probably wouldn't have worked about 60 to 65 days. You probably worked 300 days a year. So 300 denarii is about a year's worth of wages. And of course, when we talk about a year's worth of wages, we're not talking about the lawyer's $1,200 a billable hour wage. We're talking about manual labor Day labor, sweaty, working in the sun wage, stiff neck, sore back, early morning, tired in the evening wages, farmer, fisherman wages. This bottle of perfume would have most likely been not only the most valuable possession for this family, but really the most valuable possession of any family. And Mary says, I'm pouring it out on you, Jesus. It's it's yours. It belongs to you. Now, consider this, context, or consider this in your context. A year's salary, a year's wages. What do you think? Could you do it? Could you could you just dump it out on Jesus in a moment of exultant praise? Could you give him a year's worth of your treasure? I was recently hanging out with some fellow church members, and we began to talk about, you know, what's your most valuable possession? And, uh, and as we were talking about this, the, the question was really like, well, how do you determine it? And okay, if your house is on fire, what's the one thing that you run back in to save, right? And because we're all Christians and we're not carnal in any way, and because we have, you know, home and property insurance, all of our answers were like, you know, the kids' scrapbooks and you know, the shadow box that, you know, my husband made for me for my anniversary. Wife made for me? Yeah, husbands don't make shadow boxes, right? Photo albums, kids' drawings, that sort of thing. But then the thought experiment led me to wonder, what do I value above all else? And the follow-up question to that is, would I sacrifice that thing that I value above all else? Would I sacrifice that for the Lord Jesus in worship? That's a good question for you to ask yourself. First, you need to figure out what your most valuable possession is. Your most valuable possession could be your young, healthy, fit body that you've been 
spending so much time and money taken care of. Oh, the, the gym time and the, the road work and the supplementation, the essential oils on the soles of your feet every night, the ice baths, you know, whatever it takes to make you young and in shape. Would you give that up for the sake of Jesus? What if Jesus is calling you to the jungles of South America to take the gospel to a tribal people? Friend, let me tell you, as someone who's gone through that, your body will not hold up. Everything there is trying to kill you. And it is really, really tough. Would you give that up for the sake of Jesus? Your most valuable possession may be your career. I went to school for this, and uh, early mornings, late nights, and I've been working and striving and grinding and sacrificing and saving, and I've been building up my career. Would you give that up for Jesus? It's not outside of the realm of possibility. Brooks Booser, the guy who founded Radius International, the missionary training agency, he had, he went, that was his exact story. And he was driving a Benz around Southern California, going home to his $3 million house. His wife had a rock so big, you know, the size of the moon on her finger, you know. And then two years later, he was in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, planning a church. Your most valuable possession may be your family. Oh yes, that's one of the risks of our, our little evangelical subculture. We can idolatrize fam- family. Would you be willing to lay your family on the altar of praise? I think one of the reasons why the story of Abraham and Isaac is in the Bible, his most valuable possession was his son. Was he willing to give up his child for the sake of the Lord? I have seen Christians make some profoundly unworshipful decisions because they valued their family more than they valued Jesus. Either what Jesus was demanding of them or what Jesus was demanding of their family. Jesus came calling for their children, hey, hey, I want you to go and risk for the, sake of the, for the sake of my name, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the Great Commission. And the parents go, no, 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 that can't happen. That's the most normal thing that you should expect to happen. I don't know how we can value family more than Jesus when Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Maybe your most valuable possession is your relationship, and you go, God, you can take anything you want from me. You can take my money, you can take my health, you can take my career, but you cannot take this person from me. Do you understand that there's nothing, there's, there's no thing outside of Jesus that Jesus could not call for you to give to him as an act of worship? It could be your comfort and convenience. It could be your personal image. Jeez, you know, I really don't want people to think I'm this ignorant, backward, bigoted Christian. And so your most valuable possession may be your home. I'm talking about, yes, your literal, physical dwelling. And maybe... The Lord has blessed you and you've worked really hard for a long time and you've saved a lot of money and you've planned meticulously to get your house just the way you like it. My wife does that every six months. It's perfect. Now let's change everything. (laughs) But seriously, maybe you have finally gotten your dream home and you think, I am set. 
That seems exactly like the kind of thing that Jesus would come and take right away from you just so you would know that this place is not your home. It's not like he's unsympathetic. The God of the universe came down in flesh and when he was ministering, he had no place to lay his head. Your most valuable possession may be your hatred and unforgiveness towards someone who has wronged you. I've had a woman tell me, I will do anything for God, but he cannot ask me to forgive my stepfather and what he did to me. Well, that hatred, that's what you're worshiping. Maybe it's drugs. That's what it was for me when I first got saved. The thing that I loved most in the world that I couldn't imagine give up, take away my freedom, take away my health, take away everything, but give me my drugs. And Jesus came along and he said, oh, no, you're going to give that up and you're going to worship me. I could keep going down the list, but you, you get the point. Following Jesus is costly. And maybe some of us here haven't really been able to seriously consider the, count of the, consider the cost of following Jesus. And, and maybe we have, but, but maybe you're sitting here and you're wondering, man, if the day came, and, and Sean, man, he's saying some stuff up there, and it's really getting me thinking, could I? And then you've inserted your thing, right? My perfect house, my children, my career. Could I, in that moment, if Jesus, could I give that up? Well, here's just a good litmus test. Are you being faithful with the little that you have now? Are you willing to sacrifice in tiny ways now? If you're worried about being sacrificial in a big way for the sake of Jesus in the future... Well, the evidence for you to be able to do that is are you being faithful and sacrificing for him right now, right? Like people, oh, Sean, you were a missionary? Tell me all about it. I want to go be a missionary. And I'm like, bro, you only come to church every other Sunday. I'm not going to send you to go over and do this impossibly difficult thing when you can't even do the basic thing. You can't even serve in children's ministry. Why am I going to send you to the nations, right? Oh, Sean, I'd be able to give up my bank account for Jesus. Friend, you're not even giving to the local church. You're not even supporting the gospel ministry that's happening right here in your midst. Your pastors are being paid. The lights are being kept on. Evangelism is happening. Caring for the poor in our midst. Missionaries are being supported. And you aren't contributing a lick to it. What makes you think that if Jesus comes and says, I want you to give me everything, that you'll be able to do that? You can't even give in 10, 15% now. A man once asked a Navy SEAL how he could achieve world-class self-discipline. And the Navy SEAL responded, start with flossing. The second way that she was sacrificial Mary was, is that she sacrificed her glory. She sacrificed her glory. We live in a dignity culture, right? And in a dignity culture, no one wants to feel in any way undignified. We don't want to feel in any way less than anyone else. This is one of the reasons why I've noticed, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but I don't think so. I checked with a couple other waiters just to see if I was crazy. I find that some well-to-do people often overemphasize how difficult of a job it is to be a waiter or a waitress. Oh, man, they got it rough. Now listen, I've been a waiter. I know it can be a little hard. 
But on the grand scale, it's not that hard. Okay? I did it. You take people's food orders. You take the drink orders. Yeah, sometimes you're rushing around. You got to get the cups filled up. Yeah, ooh, okay. But I think one of the reasons why well-to-do people overemphasize how difficult it is to be a waiter or a waitress is because as they imagine themselves in that situation, what they think about is how undignified they would feel in a service industry. They think about how easily demeaned they could feel by the customers. And so when they say difficult, that's what they mean because they never ever feel that way in their lives. The fact of the matter is that none of us wants to experience a diminishment of our dignity, of what we perceive to be our value or our worth. Another word for this is our glory. If we, if we have a perceived level of honor and respect and dignity and glory, we want to keep it at that level. But if Jesus is who he says he is, friends, then we must diminish our glory as we receive his. And that's exactly what we see in this morning's text. Mary sacrifices her glory at the feet of Jesus. In what way? Jonathan, I'm glad you asked. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Starting in verse 14, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, we're not going to have a big, long conversation about hair length this morning, but what I just wanted to do is I want to show you from Scripture that God has designed men and women such that A woman's hair is her feminine glory. It is the crowning glory of femininity. Now, let's go back to what's happening in John 12. In John 12, in verse 3, Mary pours the oil probably over Jesus' head and it goes all the way down to his feet. And then she takes her hair and washes his feet with her hair. Now, here's the thing about washing feet. In biblical times, To wash someone's feet was the lowliest type of work. It was more often than not performed by slaves. We don't know everything about Mary's life, but we have every reason to believe just by the fact that she owned an expensive bottle of nard that she was fairly well-to-do. She was not in any way a slave. And yet, as this oil runs down the head of Jesus to the feet of Jesus, she takes down her glory and uses it to wash his feet. There may be no greater expression in all of Scripture of a sinner saying to God, my glory in exchange for yours. And you see this all throughout the Bible. In Revelation 4, you see the same thing playing out with the elders. In Revelation 4, we read this. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, they fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him. So this is a picture of heaven. The lamb is on the throne. He's receiving the appropriate worship. Well, what does that worship look like? 
they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, worthy are you, right? They have these crowns. What do the crowns symbolize? Earthly glory. They behold Jesus in his glory, and they go, something's wrong. (laughs) And they collapse at his feet, and they throw their glory down at his feet, and they go, we don't deserve it. You deserve it all. This is what Christians do. Sacrificing our personal glory may be the most difficult sacrifice of worship we can make, but it is the most necessary sacrifice of all. And then finally, point number four, Mary's worship is radical. That baby's probably just giving glory. He heard what I was saying. He's ramped up. Now, the final thing I want us to see about Mary's sacrifice that John doesn't record, but Mark does, Mark tells us in chapter 14 of, this, of his gospel that uh, when Mary poured the perfume out on Jesus, it says she broke the flask. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. She didn't have to break the flask. I mean, the text tells us that the scent of the perfume filled the house. That's strong. You know, like, Eighth grade boy gets in the car, Aspen cologne. He didn't do one spritz on the neck and one on the wrist. He did 15. The girls are at the arcade are, at the arcade are going to know I'm here, right? <laughs> Fills the vehicle. Filled the whole house. She could have just put a quarter of the jar on his head. She could have just put one ounce. She probably just could have put a few drops. But she breaks it. There's no going back. All of this is for you. This is an act of radically sacrificial worship. Sometimes I think as Christians, we just play it too safe. Again, with all the qualifiers, don't go out and be unnecessarily risky and don't be stupid and don't be overly zealous. Seek counsel from your elders and pastors, all of that stuff. But sometimes I just think we play it so safe. We always give ourselves an option B and an option C. And if it doesn't go well when I, put, when I, when I go out there and I risk it for Jesus, well, I'm always going to have this contingency. But friends, there's something about Christianity that it just doesn't work right if there's not the right element of risk. I once knew a brother who dedicated his life to sharing the gospel in a very rough neighborhood of Atlanta. And he had a very difficult ministry, and you could see it on his face. Every Sunday you'd see him at church, he would just, how you doing? He'd be like, uh, you know? Hard soil. His house got shot up. His home and his car had been broken into on multiple occasions. Raising his children in that neighborhood was very difficult. One day I saw him at church, and I noticed that he had gotten a neck tattoo. I was not super happy to see that he had gotten a neck tattoo. I have tattoos. Christians can disagree about that, right? Whatever. I was like, man, a neck tattoo? Hard to get a job, you know? Maybe not these days, but then. So I went up and I asked him about it after service, trying to be all casual, only halfway hiding my (laughs) disappointment in him. And I said, hey, man, what's up with the, oh, you got some new ink? Of course, it was a Christian tattoo, right? All right, so he's got me on that one. And I said, well, what made you get on your neck? And he said, you know, man, I got a job offer. 
I've been really wrestling whether or not I should go take that job and, you know, kind of move on. He said, after praying about it, man, I just think God wants me here with these people. It's really hard, but I think God wants me here. And he said, this tattoo is kind of my way of saying there's no going back. This is my ministry. This kind of radical, sacrificial worship is, of course, a stark contrast from what we see with Judas in this text. Look at verses 4 and 5. John chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, I've told you before how profoundly unhelpful commentaries can be sometimes in sermon prep. But whenever you see that several commentaries all mention the same thing, you should pay attention. And here's what all the commentaries say about Judas in this passage. They say that he knows that the end is near. The writing is on the wall. Jesus is going to die soon. They're closing in on him. He's been telling his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And Judas is like, all right, we're going to Jerusalem. He's going to die soon. So what Judas perceives in his heart is now is the time to cash in. What we know in the future is that Judas is going to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's his final cash-in moment. Now, one scholar writing about that betrayal says this. Many scholars think that each piece of silver was a denarius, which was the most common silver coin. If that's the case, then you can do the math. 330. Judas sells out Jesus for one-tenth of the price of what Mary poured out on Jesus in worship. So as both Mary and Judas consider the end of the life of Jesus, they have very different reactions. Mary thinks, this may be the last time I get to be with you, my Lord, my Savior, my God. Let me bless you lavishly. Let me give you the most valuable thing I own. And Judas thinks, this may be the last time I get to get something from Jesus. And why is she wasting that money by pouring it out on his head? We could sell it, put it in the money bag, and I could steal more for myself. Why is, he, why is she wasting this? But here's the thing, guys. Mary doesn't feel like she's wasting this gift. For Mary, costly worship is not a waste but an investment. Do you believe that? Risky, radical, sacrificial worship for Jesus is never a waste. It is always an investment in eternity. It may seem radical here and now. It may seem like a loss here and now. It may seem wasteful here and now. But for Mary, the wisest use of 300 denarii, a year's salary, the wisest use of that money that she could imagine was worship. Do you believe that? In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says this. He says, I count everything as loss. Everything. Why? 
I love this because it's exactly what Mary saw in Jesus. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Mary's sitting there and she's like, oh, I finally see you. This, this valuable thing, it's nothing to me. It's lost, it's worthless, it's garbage. You, you are everything. I can't give you anything, really, but this is the most I can give you. Friends, my prayer for us in this church is that we have a vision for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord and that for his sake we will suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Why? In order that we may gain Christ. 300 denarii. Nothing. That relationship that you're so desperately clinging to Nothing. That money, that just, oh, that money, you just can't let it go. Surpassing worth of Christ, it becomes nothing. Career opportunity, you know you're gonna have to compromise your faith to get that next step up the career ladder. You know it. And you're thinking about it. And you're trying to rationalize it and justify it and figure out a way to say that I'm not being disobedient, but you know you are. What's the solution? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ. It's nothing. My career is nothing. And on down the line. You know, the funny thing about this story is that at the end of the story, we come to see that Mary, what she did here wasn't really risky at all. It was the safest decision she could have made with that money. What she did here wasn't really that radical at all, at least not in light of eternity. What she did here wasn't really that sacrificial at all in light of what she gains in Jesus. I think the story of Mary's worship here in John 12 can help us see the gospel with pristine clarity. Just, let's just end the sermon by just thinking about the gospel. In the gospel, we see God the Father risking his most precious possession, his son. Why? To make us his sons and daughters. In the gospel, we see God the Son radically emptying himself, sacrificing his glory, giving up his most precious possession. Why? So that we might be crowned with glory in him. In the gospel, we see the incarnate word the eternal logos of God assumed the risk of life in human flesh. But ultimately, he paid the price for that risk. The Son of God died on the cross. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they made it out of the furnace. Jesus did not. In the gospel, we see a God who lays it all on the line for us. He counts the cost so that we won't have to. If only we will receive this offering that he has given us. And now, I, I can't think of a better way to end the sermon than these words from Paul in Romans chapter 12, verses 
1 and 2. In light of all that we've considered together today, brothers and sisters, Paul says, therefore I urge you in view of God's mercy. In light of what the gospel says, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that what you call us to is impossible. But we know that with you all things are possible. You've made a way. Help us to see with eyes of faith so that we can follow you faithfully. Amen.